Hello and welcome to Architecture Insights, the podcast series produced by the New South Wales Architects Registration Board. I'm your host, Di Snape. You're listening to the 2018 Sydney Architecture Festival feature episodes, of which there are four. So in case you were unable to make it down to the Sydney Opera House on the October long weekend, we recorded a few of the best bits to share with you. So I hope you have some time this summer to yourself where you can sit down and indulge in a bit of long podcast listening. 2018 marked the 12th annual Sydney Architecture Festival and it asked the question, what makes a building truly great? In this first episode, you're going to hear a conversation titled Ethics in an Age of Excess. It's a wide-ranging conversation, touches on truths universally acknowledged and unacknowledged. And the panel was set the task of discussing what architecture is doing in our current context of um new records for economic growth in Australia, evidence of our booming economy everywhere measured in the number of cranes in the city skyline or the number of development approvals over the past 12 months. So this all at the same time as economies globally and navigating the tricky territory of austerity, we are enjoying a kind of boom period. In the glow of such success, Why are some people asking if architecture has lost its social purpose and its focus on the public interest? It's quite a long conversation, but it's such a good one, I didn't want to cut any out. So, as I said, hope you've got some time over the summer to indulge. Here's the full conversation. Welcome, each of you. Uh, Hands up if you just saw Professor Flora Samuel speaking. Great, turn that hands up into a big round of applause. It's fantastic to have you here. Um, So we'll be continuing on from some of the themes that she raised in her talk and we'll be talking about ethics in the age of excess. We've heard at various points during the Architecture Festival, Australia is setting records for economic growth. It's a boom time, construction everywhere. There's cranes on the horizon. I can see a few over there. Well, that is Green Island, though, I should say. Um, (laughs) Always a crane or two. Uh, Major developments, there's huge infrastructure, and apparently it's a pretty good time for architects. We'll see if that's true or not. There's many luxury houses, luxury commercial towers. It's all happening. The conversation, of course, today is, has architecture lost its social purpose and focus on the public interest? What is ethics in this age of excess? So let's find out who our panel are. On my left, a gentleman who better know about ethics. He's the (laughs) Executive Director of the Ethics Centre. Please welcome Dr Simon Longstaff. You do know about ethics, don't you? A little tiny bit? Good to know. All right. Um, Professor Flora Samuel, of course, welcome again to you. Fantastic to have you here from the University of Reading. Um, Sean Carter, immediate past president of the Australian Institute of Architects, also an architect, thank goodness, good to know, and a principal of Carter Williamson Architects. Welcome, Sean. And Laura Harding, who is an urban designer, writer and architecture critic. Welcome, Laura. Okay, are we ready to talk ethics, gentlemen and ladies? Yep, great. Okay, what is ethics in the context of this conversation? I'm, going to, I'm just going to throw this out to you, Sean, to, to kick us off. How do you view the term ethics in the context of what we're talking about today? 
For me, ethics is a, a, a moral framework, I guess, that um, each individual or individual practice brings to a way of thinking about not only how they design and how they, um, how they design a building, but how they conduct themselves. Um, and that framework should help you make decisions around not only your designs, but through all those different processes within architecture. Mm. Uh, Laura, does that... Do you concur or have you got a slightly different perspective? I concur. Look, I'm, um, I'm really partial to the um, definition of ethics that Jeremy Tool talks about in this fantastic book that he's written called Architecture Depends. And first of all, he starts by excoriating architects for their historic linking of ideas of architecture and beauty and sort of making it sound like if you're making beautiful things, you are doing ethical good in the world. Um, and so the alternative position that he puts forward is one that he quotes from Emmanuel um, Levinas, who described ethics as being for the other or assuming responsibility for the other. And I guess in my um, public work and writing and things, that is a kind of definition that really rings true to me because I think that when you're in the decision, in the rooms when the big decisions are made, it's the other who's not at the table, whose interests that you're often there to voice. And I think that guarding that kind of interest is where um, I think our ethical responsibilities come, in, come into play. So thinking about other people other than yourself? Other than yourself okay. other, and other than your client um, very specifically because I think as architects and urban designers we've got silent clients that we always have to um, work for, the site, the city, the things that are going to be there long after we, our clients and the buildings are long gone. Does that kind of sit, sit comfortably with you, Flora? Absolutely. I would also say we have an ethics of care for the land and the environment. So I wouldn't say it's just people. Okay. How about a historical perspective, Simon? Well, the first thing about it is that um, all of those things are, I think, correct. Uh, that notion that there's some kind of framework by which you exercise judgment in your thought and practice, that you take it in the context of relationships, and that begs a question immediately in the way that Flora just said as to who counts? Is it just yourself? And how, how broad a circle of concern do you draw? But the thing that makes ethics distinctively different from just morality is that it's a reflective practice. Mm -hmm. It's possible to engage in a kind of moral form of conduct, including in architecture, simply by following certain habits of practice or mind without necessarily thinking about it. And you can encounter lots of people who, when you say, why do you do this or why do you do that? They say, oh, well, it's obvious, everybody does it. Well, that's just the way it's always been. The distinctive thing which goes back in the, in the Western tradition to people like Socrates is that it's about an examined life. So it's not just having that moral framework, it's also about bringing critical perspectives to bear in relation to its application. And that's a, a prophylactic against some of the things that Flora talked about, where you end up doing some things which you wouldn't do if you'd even given a, a moment of thought. Mm. And of course a lot of people don't think that's a problem. Mm. Sean, what's your response? Um, it's a good response. Yeah, <laughs> powerful. Yeah, it's good to have these two in the room. Uh, look, it is a um, it, 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 it is a way of practice. I guess architecture, um, in and of itself, the, the the whole motion and of design is the iteration, and which in 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 and of itself is a reflective thing. So um, when I said that 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 moral framework and of the way you do things, uh, I think inherent in that is that iteration, that that sense of reflection. So um, maybe that's just a different way of saying it. Mm. Well, I hope it is, because mm. if it's not, then that's probably where the problem lies. Mm. And, and I can tell you, and it may be different in architecture, but after quite a long period of time talking to people about what they do, mm. 
it is incredibly common for people to explain what they do simply by saying that's the way it's done. Uh, and that can even be a set of practices which are apparently reflective, but it's almost like you tick off, oh, we've thought about this, we've done that, without really wrestling with the context, with the, mm. the notion of who's concerned about which values and principles are being given priority and how they apply in this particular context. Mm. I mean, there's hard work in that, and I think uh, it's part of that body of knowledge that I think any member of a profession has to be able to manage mm. in the way that you were talking about. I, mean, I didn't see the tiny list of things that were on the screen, but I don't know whether you included in that flora things about ethical reflection and understanding mm. the distinction even between a value and a principle as part of that body that a professional needs to be able to master. Well, absolutely, that's, uh, that's right. And th the thing that strikes me is that I don't think the ethics enters anywhere into architectural education. Right. And, and, we st and that is you know, where you set the tone of where the profession's gonna go mm. going forward. I, I, I don't know about this context. In the context I know, ethics is really barely on the table at all. And I think it, you know, there's a real problem about if it's about reflective practices, it's possibly not happening. Is, is that true, Laura, from your experience? It's, it does surprise me that there's, you're saying in, in the UK at least that ethics is not a conversation from the education of... of yeah, it might be a particular preoccupation of certain people, but right. as, a, as a blanket, what's important you know, in a constituent of education, mm. you know, you'd think it would be actually everything, you know, mm. the fundamental. It would be part of the fabric of the, entire, of the entire education process. Absolutely. Mm. It does seem a shame. Laura? Yeah, no, I think that's interesting, but I think in Sydney particularly at the moment, we are having a very large discussion about ethics in terms of what's happening in our city. And I think that's a very broad one, and I think that's being brought to the face of the profession and thrust in our faces, actually. And I think it was quite interesting when we were just talking before about the other part of the provocation for today, which was this question of um, in an age of excess. When are we in an age of excess? And I think in some terms we are, clearly all the discussion about the number of cranes and things that are going on. But, you know, in terms of what the other things that are going on in Sydney and the public interest and the public good, I would argue we were in it, that Sydney's experienced an age of great parsimony. Um, you know, and you can see this most clearly, and people will tell you all about it, but in the actions of our state governments since the mid-80s, which have been obsessed with privatisation and have sold off public housing, scattered in urban communities, sold off immensely significant public buildings, um, you know, failed to protect the public realm in really serious um, redevelopment projects that are going on, the travesty of unsolicited proposals which now see us looking down the barrel of potentially having two casino towers as being the emblems of our great city. Well, um, if you can't have one, you should have two. <laughs> Demolishing stadiums, the, you know, the great urban um, the horrors of the motorway projects, the slashing of the government architect's office in 2016 from you know, 120 to four staff. Mm. I mean, that's not in an age of excess. That is a real abrogation of public duty, I think. Do you, do you think that architects have colluded with that? I think architects haven't colluded with it. I think, have, or um, have or not? Haven't. I think that we're quite stunned <laughs> by the rapidity of this... Um, this really serious and rapacious kind of project that's overtaking our cities. And I think a lot of the blame for things that go, go on in the public realm is laid at the feet of architects. And I think it's a truth universally unacknowledged that architects have very little power and say in what happens in the public realm now. And we're at the mercy of all sorts of interests that are pushing really hard for private interest and private gain. Mm. And we're trying to raise our hands and I think um, 
Uh, we're trying to do our best, and I think we've got to do a lot better. Are, are, are architects raising their hands and trying to do their best? Some are, obviously, but give me a, is that actually true? <laughs> Look, I think in, a, some in are. an age where there are a lot of there's a lot of things going on, and there's a lot of work out there Look, too for architects. I think, there is I think very few are raising right. their hands. Um, I actually, um, I, I normally almost universally agree with everything <laughs> Laura says. I, I don't think we discuss ethics at all in society in general. I mean, I think architects are just part of a, a, another professional body within a broader, frame, a broader society in which we live. I mean, we're seeing the results of a, lath a lack of ethical practice. I mean, the, the Banking Royal Commission is out there for us all to see where, where where the, our, our dark angels, our worst angels, were preference over the, the common good or the, mm. the, the public interest. Uh, I think architects have been fundamentally part of that. Uh, I so think prof profit over uh, ethical choice or value judgments, I guess. But can, I, can I say on that? I mean, that, that raises a really fundamental issue. Again, drawing on what Flora was talking about earlier today, about just what is a profession? Because mm. I don't think people in the professions or even the community fully understand that there are two quite distinct worlds that stand side by side today. There's the world of the market. Now, the world of the market, it licenses the pursuit of self-interest. You know, from the time of Adam Smith, it says it's mm. perfectly okay, let the invisible hand bring about the, you know, an increase in the stock of common good. And he's much maligned, Smith, but basically self-interest is licensed. It's about the satisfaction of wants. And those two things alone are radically different to the world of the professions. Because anybody who joins a profession says, I freely choose to be part of a group of people who firstly subordinate self-interest and secondly do not satisfy wants but actually serve the interests of others. Mm -hmm. And you can see this, just a simple anal analogy. A person walking into a corner store, the world of the market, looking for some chocolate, goes up to the counter. If they can pay the tariff, they get the chocolate and away they go. Mm. Exactly the same person walking into a doctor's surgery if they're a diabetic. The doctor's going to say, no, I know what you want, but it's not in your interest that I should provide that. Now, there are some groups, and I'm not sure where architects sit on this, who get, in some sense, caught between these two things. They're In one part, they're part of the market, they're in a commercial enterprise. The question is, do they ever build, through education, a sufficiently thick ethical skin around themselves, not to get the abrasive force of the market taking them out of their professional obligations. And if, if we're not really educating people for that, I'm not sure where you develop that skin. Mm. Mm. I mean, part of this, I imagine it's the same here. A great many architects used to work in the public sector. Mm. And, and it was a different, it wasn't quite such a market-led thing in those days, but... Um, and sudden, with privatisation and the marketisation of the whole the whole area, it's a complete shock for which architects were not ready to arrive in the public sector and have to deal in the market world. And I don't think we've really ever faced up to that conundrum at the heart of that. Mm. Sure. Pub public service, public good, and so on. Mm. Um, I mean, architecture takes time. Just get, coming back to Simon's thing, I, I think we have been caught in the middle uh, between... I mean, we are... We need to be employed by others to, to do our work. In fact, I would argue it's necessary that architects need a client and need these other forces you, you push against. Um, so th there always is a conundrum there or, or a difficulty, particularly if a client wants to start um, pushing at the edges of what you think is your, your ethical or moral framework. Um, and, uh, and I guess in that pursuit of... Um, 
that, that lack of regulation that the neoliberal market has sort of brought us and that everything has to go faster and move quicker and make more money, that um, I think we've been dragged probably to, away from that professional standard um, too far. I mean, it's, it can be difficult, but we do know, for example, that just to take another group, there are lawyers who work in intensely commercial private enterprises, but they will say no if they're asked to backdate a document, say, irrespective of the commercial benefit that might go to, the, to their organisation, because they're an officer of a court and they know that there are absolute boundaries they must not cross. Mm. And I suppose what you're looking for is nothing wrong with somebody being an architect working in a, a commercial practice or even a, you know, for a company or something, but they've got to know where those boundaries are. What, what was that thing you referred to? You said, just say no, there was a, yes, a document. Which no. sounds yeah. similar, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the similar kind of thing, that yes. people are building those boundaries and making them very clear. Mm. Which I would argue actually makes the profession more credible and desirable mm. ultimately. Is that happening though? Uh, architects here just saying no when we do have so many examples of, as Laura was listing earlier, these various developments that are not necessarily for the public good, as many of us might think. So what, what is the case there? Um, uh, a quick story. When I first came into architecture, I used to go to every Glenn Merkett talk I could possibly um, see. And he always talked of the story that uh, he's his practice in his architecture was much better when he learned to say no. In fact, he suddenly had people queuing up. Mm. Uh, and that, uh, I don't think I really processed what that m meant until you start in practice. And when you first start and you, you, you're petrified that, you know, you, mm. what sort of work you would get. Uh, and then you, you realise the power of saying no, um, not only because it, 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 it sort of reinforces, I mean, it sends a bad client away, which is good for business, but it also helps you reinforce what you're... Uh, what that ethic of what you're doing is. Um, and I would say, I mean, just looking at the people in this room, um, you know, if the world breaks down roughly into to the 80-20, I would say there's a lot of people would be in this room that would say no, and that's, that's good for practice and it's good for architecture. Mm. But I'm not sure that's enough. What would we be saying no to? So let's, let's work out what that actually would be. Um, you know, there is a code of conduct here in Australia and in the UK as well as to what architects should, should be doing. There's the, 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 the oath that doctors take. I know there's a financial ethical oath that's um, underway at the moment. So what, tell me, Laura, do you know what the code of conduct actually entails here? I, I looked it up. Because <laughs> I wanted to double check. Here it is. Be correct. Um, so I found two references to ethical behaviour by architects in the architects regulation. And one is a requirement that architects act with integrity and reasonable care. And the other is that the, they will withdraw themselves from a project if they believe that in that architect's professional judgment, the provision of the services would require them to act in a manner that the architect considers unethical. I think that's this, this, so if you become an architect, yeah. you sign up to, to this, Correct. is that right? Yeah, that's right. Have we all signed? All who's an architect? <laughs> You've all ticked the box? Good. Um, and I, look, I think that's interesting because it, um, in the way that that's worded, it actually places the onus of ethical decision-making onto the individual, mm. actually not the professional body. And in reading some of the references that we were tossing around to sort of look at these issues here today, there was one really interesting example about the American um, Medical Association, and they have a code that's structured as a series of opinions. And so in 1992, um, they adopted an opinion that looked at the subject of execution. And so the, the wording of that is extremely interesting because it says, an individual's opinion of capital punishment is the personal moral decision of that person. 
but, and then it goes on to say, a physician as a member of a profession dedicated to preserving life where there is hope of doing so should not be a participant in a legally authorised execution. And I think making the shift from ethics as a personal responsibility to one that's collective and one that's shared is extremely powerful because then when you want to make an ethical stand, you know that your fellow architects have your back and Joe Bloggs, designer, isn't going to come and sneak the job off you and say, yeah, sure, I'll do it. And I think that's really necessary if you want to be able to move from just advocacy into activism. And I think given the state of things in particularly this city at the moment, I think that's something we really need to start doing. To, to be to be activists. To be so activists. don't just tick the box, actually do more. Is and that to, to be ethical, you need to actually put your hand up, as we were talking earlier, and, and do something. But it's also um, the, the strong professions are bound by a framework of interpersonal accountability. Mm -hmm. So it's each other. And, and one of the things that comes from that, and a lot of professions are very bad at this part, is that it's supposed to be that others stand with you yes. when you're trying to do the right thing. That's now, right. what they're good at is punishing you when you do the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. It's relatively rare in any of the professions, at least in Australia. Yeah. Maybe, I'm not sure what it's like in the UK. But people actually just stand with you yeah. while you're trying to do good things. And, it mean, I mean, presuming that you're not just making something up, but there's that's an agreement. Right. But that, that's the kind of bond that you're, that you're looking for in those associations. And it takes work. I mean, they're not just produced by willing it to be so. You yeah. actually have to work it and build the social capital amongst the group to be able to do that. Yeah. Maybe, um, Sean, as someone who campaigned for Sirius, mm. um, if I'm sure everybody knows Sirius here in, here in the building, the, the situation there... Responding to what Simon has to say, that other people stand with you, you know, to, to do the right thing, give us a sense of what actually happened in, in, in regards to the support that you received from the architectural community. That was, uh, at that point in time, I was giving an incredible amount of time to, to the Institute and we were fighting causes that we believed in. Um, and to be there, when we had the rally and to stand there that day and look across a field of people and recognise um, two-thirds of them as architects... Uh, that idea that your your profession stands with you. I was there too, um, by the way, but don't worry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever, it's fine. I did say you were an honorary architect. <laughs> earlier on. uh, was in, incredibly in, incredibly enriching. It really inspires you to to keep. I mean, a the fight going for that building, but also to work hard for your fellow architect. Mm. Mm. But to continue to, to do so, to continue to be an advocate and an activist as well, when you are under the pump, if that makes sense, one needs to have a career, you know, um, and architects, one of the things you mentioned is that uh, Flora is that architects will, you know, bid for the lowest common denominator, or what was the, the lowest price, I guess, if that makes sense, We're sort of lowering the, the sort of the rate of what you can get as a profession, you know, the competing against each other, what's some of the problems there that can, can, that can emerge Absolutely, and I think, but I think um, we have to differentiate more between different kinds of architects. So in the UK, we have the chartered architects supposed to be the highest possible level of of uh, operation, but um, and we're doing a lot of work around making sure that it truly is the highest level of operation because there are an awful lot of architects who are not working at that same level, and they have to be differentiated out. Um, and the profession as a whole will appear deeply unethical when there are people doing zero fees and working at the very, very, very basis, base, most basic level. Um, but I think, I think that we have to be more clear about who are the goodies and who are the baddies in this story. Uh, and I think there's been quite a lot of mealy-mouthedness around, you know, um, the postmodern world of, uh, you know, different kinds of value sets and so on. And I think perhaps we 
need to move past that into mm. something a bit more uh, clear. Mm. So what would that be? I feel like I really want to ask who are the goodies and who are the baddies right now, but I'm <laughs> totally missing the point. How, how do we make that more clear? Well, well I think the point about... I mean, there were some great insights about the use of power that came out of postmodernism and the philosophical arguments around it, but there was also some rubbish. Uh, um, <laughs> which bit? Oh well, self-defeating <laughs> contradictions. But, but but the point about that, such as you know, the claim that it is absolutely true that no, no, nothing is true. You know, these things that people took up and 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 a kind of moral relativism that says there's no basis for making judgment. Because there, there has to be some way that people can actually reach a standard of judgment around the purpose for which things operate. I mentioned earlier on, I was at a, a really interesting talk given by Umberto Eco some years ago in which he distinguished between the ancient world and the modern world by saying that the ancient world was populated by heroes, whereas in the modern world we just had celebrities. It was all about glittering surfaces and nothing of substance. And it triggered in me... Bits of trivia occasionally stick in my mind. One of them was that there's these two words from ancient Greece, kalos and aishiron. And the word kalos had two meanings. One was beauty and the other was honour. And the word aishiron was both shame and ugliness. And there was a sense, I think, in that ancient world that things that were beautiful had a certain character or quality to them that went beyond just the glittering surface. There was a depth to this. And I've, I've always been interested in this in the world of architecture too, as to how one... I mean, you raised it, I think. You said something about making just beautiful things. That mm. It wasn't always so. Mm. That, that There was this notion that there was a depth mm. to things. And so how many buildings now are, if you like, heroic buildings as opposed to being celebrity buildings? <laughs> and particularly, I mean, you talked about the Gary Labs and things like that. I think wonderful architect. But... If the form is being just something produced by a computer-generated system, where is the architect and their ethical commitments mm. embedded in that building in the way that someone like Echo might suggest we think we look for? So I think... So all we want is the shine. Maybe, but, but maybe we're missing too much. Uh, maybe we forget too much or lose too much from architecture when it just becomes about that. Mm. And that if we go back to the purpose in that deeper sense, then maybe it starts to provide some of those, those ethical foundations that are needed from which to build. So it's not just an arbitrary, oh, I'll pick this value and that principle and I'll cobble them mm. together. But there's some substance to this stuff. How do we find our way to that substance, though? What are, what are some of the challenges that, that you face, I suppose, in, in getting past the... The spectacular, the, the I don't know, the architect kind of universe that we're, we we live under, I guess. Sean, what's your thoughts? Well, I'd start by saying I think most buildings are background buildings, and that's not to say that they you don't have to think about them with care and beauty. But um, not every building has to be an opera house. Um, so care and beauty can be on how you arrive into a front door and the that that journey from the the public domain through that threshold into ultimately your apartment. Um, care can be done through that way. I think Paris is a great example of a city that um, um, made a lot of, lot of housing, um, these beautiful uh, limestone buildings, city wall buildings of um, only six to eight storeys that, that with beautiful footpaths and lovely street trees. And there was, there was a care and a rigour about making, um, p making accommodation for people to live in the city that was of high value. And uh, so I think 
you know, it, it doesn't have to always be flying at you. And I think the me, me, I, I society has kind of got caught up with the Starchitect label and, you know, everyone's... I mean, we do the World Architecture Festival and it seems like it's a fashion parade of what can fly out the furthest. And, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, I think about our local awards here and, um, and this year particularly, I was, I was noticing some really lovely quiet buildings that had lots of careful consideration were um, rightly being acknowledged. And I think that... And that's a process through people um, looking at the image, hearing the architect speak, going visit the building and then making a decision rather than just being the fashion parade. So, I... so the conversation needs to, be, needs to be about how we as consumers, the non-architects... Is anybody else not an architect here? Hi, you're my friends. Good to see you all here. <laughs> You've been dubbed an honorary one. I'm an honorary architect, thank you. I didn't do any study. It's, uh, I'll own that one, six years, no, more, no worries. Um, but it's, it's, it's the onus is, is on us, like the clients, that those of us who, who live in the community, to be able to understand what it is that we need from an architect, to understand what a building is all about, not just to go for the, the big and the shiny and, and the bloated, the McMansions of the world, I guess. Is that, is what, that what it's we, up to? Yeah, but, no, but maybe not. I mean, what if... I mean, when I walk into a doctor's surgery, I may not, and I'm almost certainly not going to know all the things they know. There's an asymmetry in their power because of their knowledge. Mm -hmm. And Flora was talking about a body of knowledge wanting to develop through research. That will give rise to an asymmetry of knowledge. And I expect an architect to take the same concern that I might not know what I, where my interests lie or how they would be best served. But you should be able to draw that from me to, to, to help me see it. But not just tick it off because I say I want something mm. or, or give it to me because it can or whatever. I mean, it's, just, it's a delicate balance, but there's nuance and judgment in that that I think has to alleviate me as the client from some of the responsibility because of the expertise the architect brings. So it's not about just simply saying no to what the client actually wants. It's about helping us, the community, understand what else can yeah, be possible. So. Would, that, would that be about right, Flora? That is right. I mean, that makes me think about the issue of language. So I did a research project on why so many people didn't bother employing an architect to do their house extensions in the UK. And, and, and you'd ask people what they wanted from their building, and they'd say, oh, we want storage or whatever. But then you'd send them off to do with, with cameras to take photographs about what they cared about about the building, and they actually photographed the natural light coming in and all these things that they didn't have words to talk about. Mm. And... Um, I think that's so. I think the architect steps in to those moments that they that that they to help them to develop and realise their dreams that they didn't even know were there. Mm. And that's it. If you're a small-scale domestic architect, it's an amazing art, <laughs> actually achieving achieving that kind of relationship. Um, so yes, I mean. There's so much to the professional embodied knowledge that architects do have. And I don't think it's fair on the, to suggest that um, non-architects should be sort of pushing it. We have to work in collaboration. Mm. Um, but I think, I think we have to be loud and proud about how architecture can really improve people's lives and that that is good architecture, good, and we and ex be explicit about that. Uh, and we need to show why, so that it's actually listened to by... Um, other forces in the in the equation. Mm. When you talk about collaboration in in your book, you also say it's it's has its partner word, which is trust. Mm. So how do we how do we find that trust in order to be able to 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 get to the conditions that we need? Well, trust is I, I I'm really interested in trust in terms of. Um, building contracts and procurement because so, uh, I think building contracts and procurement have become just 
you know, sometimes buildings are designed, the, the procurement system is designed so that the money from the building will be made out of litigation, not even about the building. Right. The money of the building is going to the lawyer's fees and the procurement. Mm. I mean, it's insane what's happening with these building contracts. So really clever clients starting to do work whereby either they, they do procurement of buildings based on the performance, the thing that the kind, the, the levels that are achieved by that building. So you cut away all, a lot of that documentation. All really clever clients are working with the project team to make very good relations and good working relationships and then keeping the risk back to themselves and trusting the team to get on and innovate because you can't innovate and do things better without trust. Mm. And we're starting to get into a world of uh, wiki innovation and innovation you know, happening uh, open source and so we have, to, we, have, we have to develop new ways into this trust thing because Otherwise, we're just going to be stymied and we're not going to move on. Um, trust so, so what are some of the ways that we can do it? If we, can, if we, if we, if we are hoping for an ethical mm. result or society, I guess, when it comes to our, our buildings and our built environment, how can we then move from a place of, as you say, architects are much maligned in the UK mm. and not so here, of course. We love you all. Um, but how can we move to a point where there is, there is trust? Well, you have to start with... You've got to start by, we'll call it the architecture as a professional or the individual architect, publicly declaring who they are and what they stand for. Absolutely. In other words, you've got to say, these are the values, these are the principles which I espouse and will apply in the conduct of my work with you. Then the person on the other side can look and say, is that person acting in a manner consistent with that or not? If they do, then it builds trust. Mm. And then people say there's a consistency. And, th and the thing about it, to go back to, I think, Laura's earlier point about bringing in a larger number of people, you cannot create trust by just a one-on-one -on -one relationship, say, with a client where you treat them in a manner consistent with these values and principles, while at the same time not applying them in your dealings with other people, your colleagues or your society or whatever. Trust only grows when those values and principles are applied consistently across the full spectrum of relationships. Because whenever people see aberrant behaviour, that is inconsistent behaviour, they say, oh, that's what you're really like. Mm. This is just something that you were spinning to me in order to secure a contract or a relationship. Mm. So it's very difficult in that sense to maintain perfect consistency across the full spectrum of relationships. But if you do that, then you start to get the mutual benefits because the one thing we know from economics, or one of the many things we know, but is that high trust equals low cost. I mean, if Flora and I make an arrangement based on a handshake, it's nothing as long as we can trust each other. Mm. You put all these other deadweight costs of enforcement and supervision and things like that through contracts, burgeoning, it costs a fortune and it comes out of the project and out of the pockets of the community. Sean? <laughs> Uh, being on the board as I am, <laughs> um, look, in, in an ideal sense, a handshake would be um, a fantastic way to run a relationship. Have you ever done it? Of... Have you ever, just out of interest, is, I don't know, is anybody in the, sorry, I shouldn't take over your No, no, don't, please. But I'm just do interested God. to know if there's I any architect you. here who's ever entered into any kind of arrangement based on a promise or a handshake rather than a contract. Good point. Hands up. Yes. Yeah, at least yeah. one person. Just couple, one? A, couple, a couple of people have. <laughs> a handshake. Yeah. And, okay. did it, and did it work? So there's that. Right. That's good. I like this. That, that falls under that sort of, um, you know, shared responsibility, um, uh, shared risk kind of model. 
But I think, by and large, um, in, uh, um, maybe I'm only talking for New South Wales, but I see lots of our residential architects that are working with clients and, you know, I think the, the common phrase is you, you take your client on the journey. Um, but what you're doing is, or what, you, what you're really saying is through different ways of describing or translating their desire for their building through... Uh, through words, through drawings, through physical models, through computer models, through hand sketching, you develop that trust to a process of getting to a stage where you build a building. And yes, that's just a, sure, uh, a, sh a small group of people sharing within that trust. Um, but in many ways, it's, that's happening with our residential architects because we're finding it really difficult at the other end of the scale, where you, the big commercial projects where it's all DNC or um, and probably our worst uh, sector, which is our government sector, who really doesn't understand the value of architecture and just falls into this cost model thing. So it's hard to... We, we can sit there through our awards process uh, through the Institute and say, look at the great things that we can do and um, build... You know, um, it's, it's only really delivered through trust, and yet you, you, there's this vast disconnect between um, big business and, and government... Um, not believing. Uh, in fact, they're almost petrified of the grey. And architects and architecture really lives within the greys. And through that trust, you, you hold hands and you walk through that mm. process. But that needs to be so black and white, you know, so contractual, so mm. driven that um, we're, not, we're not really seeing that there. Right. Things need to change. Laura, any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, look, I think the other thing that sort of plays into that is that there's this current fervour for architectural competitions as a way of um, procuring work. And almost every building, every major building in the City of Sydney now will have some kind of design excellence project and four or five architects will have to produce a scheme that's then um, looked at. And I think we get this problem where through that model, architects are removed from the client. <laughs> and so in that very early stage of the project where you're um, trying to understand their needs, infer their needs, broaden things, you can't talk to them and you're removed from them. And then the client is sort of lumped with this building and this, this architect and then has to move on somehow. And I don't understand why we've decided that just having four architects work in isolation and then suddenly, you know, you pick a scheme and then that, that this is somehow a way of um, making architecture excellent. And because I think that question of trust um, is so important and not just at the beginning of the project but it's for that dogged determination that it is required to actually see the building through to completion and afterwards in how it's managed and used over time and to actually take that kind of really important moment in the project when you can build trust and to sort of remove that possibility I think is really problematic. Mm. I think it's a really, really good point because the way in which buildings are procured now and these chunks, the team's changing constantly. There's nobody carrying the baton. The, the trusting relationship doesn't happen uh, going through. And the teams and the churn within those teams, of, yeah. even within the client, changes all the time. So trusting relationships are very, very hard yeah. to achieve. It's a really good point. Mm. And you don't get paid for half of that work, is that right? Sometimes. Oh, look, in those competitions... I never get paid for it, but I never worked on it. Architects get paid for their work on those competitions, but I, anecdotally, I can tell you, they would spend more than four to five times what mm. they get paid in the process to compete for that work. Well, mm. The criteria goes up all the time mm. of what you need to deliver. Okay. Um, we might throw it to questions now and, and keep the conversation going. So if you do have a question for any of our four panellists or something you can add to the conversation, please feel free to raise your hands in the air like you just don't care. There's one just over here as well. I think they should ask you questions too. And you can ask me questions as well. Yeah. I know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> 
So I have a question, but first, very quickly, I'm, I might just react to what has just been said. Uh, because in France, the competition system has been really um, an improvement in terms of not giving contracts to friends and against corruption and this kind of thing. So that's a really good boundary. And if in the competition, the architect, the team, explains their ethics and the project, um, because it's not only an image and documents, but it's also words. Um, I think, yeah, uh, I would I would defend this uh, <laughs> subject. But actually, I, w I just wanted to ask a question about um, what you said, uh, Simon, <laughs> about uh, the relation between ancient Greece and today. Actually, in the history of architecture, there has been cycles between classical ways and baroque ways to do architecture. So things are never set as a good solution and a good ethical solution. So maybe there would be a difference between morals, strong morals, or too strong morals, mm -hmm. um, according to Umberto Eco, also Gilbert Simondon in France, and ethics. Um, yeah, would yep. you as a... Yeah, so thank you for that. And that helps me to clarify what I was saying. Um, I wasn't suggesting that there should be a fixed moral framework which applies consistently across all times and all places. Uh, it goes back to that distinction I tried to make at the beginning between an ethical stance, that is one of reflective practice, and a moral stance, which is one where it applies certain values and principles, perhaps just as a matter of habit. What I think you could argue for consistently through time is the ethical stance. That is that you care in the process of design as much about the purpose for which you're designing and the sorts of values and principles that you bring to bear as an explicit part of an architect's practice rather than just relegating that as irrelevant as a time. Now that shouldn't in any way mean that there's only a fixed idea of form or structure it should allow that, and in, in, in a sense you gave the answer, you said in the competition system in France which you defend, not only do you produce a drawing but you also might articulate the values and principles, the ethical framework which you bring to bear in that design. It's the process of making that an explicit part of the architect's practice that I think is the essential part that can be lost and may have been lost, which is the point about Echo. He says, it just became the glittering surface and nothing more. It wasn't about having a convention or norm that restricted innovation. Mm. Thank you. Melanie? Um, thank you all for, your, for the discussion this afternoon. I have a question, um, possibly more to Flora than others, but I'm happy to hear everyone's opinion. As someone who's been involved in architectural education for a long time, the discussion around ethics not really being taught and not really being on the table, a lot of people would say, well, there's so many things that don't make it into architectural education and um, it's all, the, the curriculum's already jammed full and, and so forth. But I would argue that um, perhaps if we went back to or if we were able to adopt an integrative model, such as problem-based learning, and I'm talking from my own experience of being at Newcastle University during a very particular point in time where problem-based learning was about interleaving um, all aspects of a project in your design studio. So, and part of that came through the practitioner tutors that we had. And so we learnt about 
possibly ethical approaches or things that they had actually learned through that process of having them um, be our tutors, but also that the design studio did not purely revolve around the act of design, that, that we were asked to consider other things in an integrated way. The argument, of course, is that integrated design studios are... It's hard to find people who can teach them and that they're hard to, to fund because they involve teaching students a particular way. I would be very interested to know your thoughts on that style of teaching or that type of teaching, but also on the role of practitioners in the, in, in the, academy, in the academy. So what's POM-based learning? Um, <clears throat> The problem-based learning model is... Oh, problem-based. Right. It was developed at Newcastle University for the medical school and then it was adapted and brought into the architecture school and it was a way of um, embedding in design studio a whole bunch of the considerations that we as practitioners would do every day on, in our projects but it was actually put into the studio which meant we had to have a lot more studio time and quite a different way of learning um, subject matter, I guess. But I would argue that design studio is robust enough to be able to teach ethics as it is to be able to teach construction or it is to be able to teach environmental studies. But I, I'm really interested in what Flora may mm. have to say about that. Well, I think problem-based, project-based learning is, is really fundamental, going back to Donald Schoen and the, the, the principles of professionalism and learning through projects, synthesising lots of stuff in a project is, is a very classic and good way of working um, and maybe but maybe it is why things discussion of things like ethics may have not been discussed because people are discussing so many other kinds of things um, and you have to it, there's a delicate balance between the, the integrated project and proper discussions of the, of the sort of satellite subjects around um, the thing that troubles me is is the um, acceptance of projects that are, well, you know, it depends what kind of architecture school you come from, but there are some schools that absolutely love dystopian, highly theoretical, highly unapplied kind of projects that take architecture into the realm of fantasy, and we do, maybe we need those moments, but whether architecture schools should be doing these dystopian, highly fantasy projects, or whether architecture schools should be thinking about things about real-world problems, which I would argue is the case, because real-world problems are so difficult to deal with anyway. And actually, in presenting a future scenario of dystopia, that's an unethical act, because actually you are starting to promote a sort of miserable view. It's a bit like if you do a study of a community, you have an ethical duty to show that community in a good light, because even a student project on a community can depress that community and make them feel less than they were. Mm. Um, so I think that uh, there's, there's a lot of ethics around the design studio that we, we need to get down to the bottom of. And one, one thing, architecture students are famous for just getting out to the street and asking people questions, taking photographs of them, putting them in their collages. It's just not on anymore. And if you are in another field, you have to go through an ethical process to check that you are not doing damage to reputation and also the world of social media and all of these things. And you are uh, and you are um, crediting people for other kinds of work. So I slid, so I slid your question away, Melanie, onto something that I've got a big a bit of a hang up about, <laughs> <laughs> which is you know that you know, that, you know we have architecture design studios is a great place to start considering 
uh, particularly if you do filmmaking and stuff with real people in, in Design Studio, it's a great place to integrate discussions about ethics mm. and the way you present people and the impacts that you might be having. Thank you. Uh, just over this side, the front, thank you. Thanks. Uh, I just had a quick question about ethics and how we begin to maybe enforce, not enforce them, but add them to the conversation now other than at university. And I know, for instance, that the state of California adopted this really peculiar, really interesting way of getting around designing prisons. And it was that the federal government requires a local architect to be involved in the building of prisons. So the local chapter of the AIA adopted the UN's definition on torture which I think made it impossible for an architect to then design a supermax prison based on federal guidelines. So then mm. they essentially couldn't build any more prisons in the state of California. Now, I don't, I don't know how that's played out, but that's one way of, and I'm, I assume they're still building prisons in California, but um, I don't know if that's just, if that's a way of kind of enforcing a particular or an ethical standpoint is through kind of your, your code of ethics or, or code of practice. Or does it need to be in another kind of broader way? Because for the for the most part, all of us that are practicing architecture now, there's more of us practicing now than there will be students coming into it. So how do we kind of correct the profession as it is more mm -hmm. so now than waiting for all the students to replace us? What do you reckon? Oh, look, um, uh, two thoughts there. Um, I certainly agree with Laura's um, uh, thesis that we need to move into activism. I think we need to come out and say what we believe and stand beside it. But I also think society needs a little bit of help. I think we've moved a long way from uh, winding back regulation. I think regulation is a human construct that we put into things that are largely not human systems to make them more human. And I think to help society move back towards some sort of balance, I think regulation and the explanation of regulation, as well as that activism, saying what you mean and believing it, um, will we'll help us get there. So we do get to positions where we turn around and say, we will not do this. And what, what about, sorry, naming and shaming? You may, we award architects, but what about you know, the disaward or something like that? If you do do something that is unethical. We spoke about the Fuglies once. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because well, we, we have all this amazing architecture produced in this, in this state uh, and in this country. And it comes up every year and we all get excited within the profession, but it, the ripples aren't really felt I don't think, enough beyond that. But I bet if we came out and said, see all those Meriton buildings, they're bad, and here are all the reasons why, um, around values, people would, would, would listen. Be, I think that would be quite, quite effective. Laura, what you're no, going to say? I also think widening the scope of the target of who's responsible for that. Because, I mean, architects sort of have a fervour, almost approaching self-flagellation, about wrapping themselves up in design excellence and design review and, you know, they just fervently, passionately want things to be better and we're wrapping ourselves up in this ama amazing amounts of process and paper to, you know, control our outputs. But I don't think there's any comparable oversight of the sort of people who have the real power, like developers or consortiums who are, you know, running these big jobs and making the huge decisions that really make the difference. And, you know, I wonder if, you know, 
I can imagine, a situation where potentially if these guys had to lodge a DA and they had to put in their bona fides of the last five projects they completed and they had to have those scrutinised, you know, are the buildings still looking okay, you know, how many changes did they make during construction, is the builder still in, you know, business or has he liquidated, you know, are the people living there having a, you know, having a good life? Um, and I think sort of starting to interrogate those things and sort of saying, okay, let's, let's see, let, prove to us that you are capable of, you know, building our city, not just nibbling at the edges of design, but, you know, the decision makers, let's put them in the frame as well. Mm. Mm. Thank you. At the back. Um, I thought it was a really interesting parallel to draw with doctors and the statement that everybody knows first do no harm is, is what doctors are all about. I think architects in media, in movies and all of that, we, I think the thing you would probably come to was architects are first about themselves. Um, that's what seems to be in the, in the press. Mm -hmm. If you were to come up, I mean, architecture is so complex. There's, there's so much complexity in everything that we do. But if you on the panel were to come up with one catchphrase that was the thing that we wanted us to live by and everybody in the public to know about us, what would it be? Don't wear black all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but the real answers. Simon, how about you? What do you think the, the catchphrase could be oh, for as architects a, as, a, as, a, as, as not an architect? Oh, gosh. I'd only be... <laughs> yeah, well, the, all the architects probably already know. Um, I don't know if I can reduce it to a single catchphrase like, you know, maybe something around it being fit for purpose. Mm. Um, there'd be something, and then I'd want to unpack those three words. I mean, we, we grossly underestimate the significance of understanding purpose, whether it's in institutional design, or around design actually. Um, again, it's a very old idea that the, the telos or purpose of something needs to be understood to know what counts as a good form of it. So what the, the telos, the purpose of a knife, is to cut. So a good knife is a knife that will cut well. Um, it would be something in that space that I, I think it, I, I would be looking at. And then I'd want to add a few words around the context. So fit for the purpose for, uh, and then it would be, you know, I'd, I'd tend to go towards a societal, a good society, good mm. purpose, fit for a good purpose in a good society, something like that. The public. That's just off the top of my head. It's probably completely... <laughs> all the architects are going, oh, dear. You're, you're, put on, you're put on the spot. Maybe it's something yeah. we can all discuss. I think there is a Sydney architects? architecture um, hashtag, so maybe that's one thing that you can continue that conversation on the social media afterwards. Um, another couple of questions before we wrap up. Thank you. Um, do we need to change the system or the education system so that planners are also in the room or we actually have a combined planning architecture degree? And I say that because... When I look at it from an ignorant, from a layperson perspective, I see that planners are a lot at fault. It's not just the developers, but it's the actual planners. And I look at particular planning firms around town who are instrumental in setting the framework for many of the very large developments and have pushed the envelope. Some have even been named an ICAC. And our, our, our architects actually challenging that. So I just say, look, you know, this conversation is on one side over here, but our, is the architectural profession actually challenging their colleagues in another profession and should we change the system so that they work better together? Mm. I think that's an excellent point and um, when I say we should broaden the target I think that's an absolutely um, essential place to do it as well and I don't think we're doing enough, we have to do more and I think even higher than that there's um, incredible civic reform that we need to look at which is political donations and inappropriate political influence and that cuts across 
every sphere of our community. Mm. And in ours, we see it very... Um, quite clearly through the you know commodification of housing and the problems in inequality and inequity that we're getting through that and we just have to hit that at the top and we have to you know make reforms so that we can allow our politicians to, to be their best selves and to make it easy for them to make good decisions and good policy that um, does what we need look uh, immediate past president I, uh, <laughs> I, I see planners um, the rise of planners and and planning. Uh, has sort of come along with this, this, really this whole neoliberal process, this lack of regulation, because we've slipped down the path of planning is really much more of a legal process. It's a word-based process. And something that Flora mentioned uh, in your presentation earlier, um, the built environment, as far as I can uh, tell and see, is it spatial. And to, to reduce um, planning or decisions down to just words and whether it's legally right, I think has really got us into this mess. So, and I think to correct all of that, we need to go all the way back up and maybe just change the, the name from Department of Planning to maybe the Department of Urban Design so that we can recast that conversation around a spatial conversation mm. and, and then and bring in the other layers of social, cultural, environmental, these values um, that helps explain. I'll, I'll take on the issue of the profession not being seen to do enough. I think it, we've got this real problem of it resting on individuals and individual ethical stances. Yours is serious. And I think you, you've been able to be amazing in terms of bringing lots of people with you. But there's this discomfort in lots of issues and lots of controversial issues about, um, you know, because there might be some people in the membership who disagree or whatever. And I think we've got to be much better at um, formulating uh, and explaining what our ethics are as a group. And, you know, we meet at National Conference every year and we sit and we listen about architecture and we have all these informal discussions. But, you know, what if there was a session every year where we debated policy like political parties did and we argued and we fought and we, we did that really publicly and messily and we voted and we came to conclusions that then we were obligated to defend. Yeah. Um, I think we need to be much clearer about our group purpose and um, explaining what that is. I think you're absolutely right. I I'm think also wondering though whether there's a, some cultural norms around architecture. I'm just fascinated by your comment about oh, when you see television programs or films, what kind of conclusion you have. Because we've all seen these television programs where you know, law firms go and do you know, all sorts of good things in the hospitals where the... Do Imagine if somebody made a television program about a firm of architects. <laughs> no, but, one, but one where they took really difficult problems and they did intervene yeah. and they, ch yeah. they, they challenged and they solved and that became... I mean, the cultural norm, you know. I'm just, anyway, just... OK. <laughs> so we'll have one last question, but um, Simon is taking pictures later for TV yeah. shows. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's actually really interesting what you were saying before, Laura, because I think that was that's actually probably the response that we need to hear. Because I, I think from all of this, what we sort of seem to be hearing is that ethics as a practice is something that's quite individual in the sense that you need to personally figure out what it is that, you know, is valuable to you and how you will move that forward with respect to your professional relationships with other people. But we, we work, first of all, as practitioners, a lot of the time not by ourselves. Mm -hmm. And as a profession, it is mm -hmm. meant to be this collective thing. And we are paralysed by not being able to actually have a collective voice on a lot of issues because we're constantly looking around the room sort of saying, well, uh, do you agree? Like, mm. we sort of agree, but... And maybe it is that thing where it, it does almost become for lack of a better word, like a political conference every year where there's a series of items that are tabled and we pretty much say, yeah, those ones, and you look around the room and you do shame the people that don't do the right thing um, when they don't put up their hand and don't vote for it. I'm like, okay, well, 
is if if that's how you see your part in our professional landscape, then good luck to you. Mm. So, so my, I, that that's probably less. It was kind of it was actually going to be more of a question as to well, how do we move it forward, given that it is a kind of individual pursuit in a in a in a profession which is meant. Well, to the AMA different. do it. I mean, most yeah. doctors operate in their own little surgeries and practices. They come together. They have very robust debates about policy issues, and they project them quite forcefully into community. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. I, my, so my idea of naming and shaming is, is going well. <laughs> Someone else picked up on it. Um, this is a conversation that is, uh, it is long, it is big, it is something possibly for another conference next year for you in the <laughs> planning universe and it's something, again, that you can continue on, on the Twitters and elsewhere. Um, I have thousands of questions, but we, we, we just have to have, have chat with them afterwards. Um, so on that note, let's all be ethical. Yes, we all agree. We're going to be ethical in our practices. And most importantly, can we please thank our incredible panellists, uh, Simon Longstar, Flora Samuel, Sean Carter and Laura Harding. Thank you very much, guys. And that was Ethics in an Age of Excess panel conversation. Thank you, of course, to all of the panel members for giving their time so generously. Thank you, of course, as always, to our Sydney Architecture Festival event partners, Cement, Concrete and Aggregates Australia, the Built Environment Channel, Rodeo Designers, and of course, the Sydney Opera House. Thanks for listening to Architecture Insights. I'm your host, Di Snape.